a Bible with you, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 as we continue this series through this marvelous chapter in God's Word. It's good to be back with you today. Thank you for the opportunity to head down to Houston. If you're going to go to Houston, February's the time to go, by the way. Um, but it was good to be back in uh, the city of my birth and where I was raised. Um, I will tell you what I told one of my pastor friends uh, from the host church of the event I preached at. I, I, I said, Richard, it's, it's been great to, to visit Houston again. I'm really glad I live in the Shenandoah Valley. And so he understood that. Um, thanks to um, our session here, we have such great elders. And uh, just to them for their generosity in letting me um, go and preach in another state for a few days. Um, so grateful for the men that I get to uh, to serve with here. Um, I could go on, but I won't. I don't want them to get prideful. Um, we have the best elders. Um, Romans chapter 8. Well, it would be difficult to um, exaggerate the greatness of the remaining portion here of Romans chapter 8. And I'm talking about verses 28 all through the way to the end of verse 39. This is a remarkable section of a remarkable section of Scripture. John Stott writes that these final verses of Romans 8, quote, the Apostle Paul soars to sublime heights unequal elsewhere in the New Testament. I think he's right. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at just three verses, 28 through 30. Lord willing, next week when we come back together, we'll conclude this series through Romans 8 by looking at verses 31 through 39. Uh, But let me read for you verses 28 through 30. If you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's Word. I, I, I remind us of that every week, that this is God's Word It is inspired, it is holy, it is living and active, it is for our good. Do we realize what's going on, what God is doing when His His Word is read and faithfully proclaimed? Do we understand that God is at work in those moments, that the chief means He uses to sanctify His people is the ministry of His Word? And what that means for you and I today is that the Holy Spirit will be actively doing his ministry in us through the means of his word, something that the world believes is foolish, something, though, that represents the wisdom and power of God, that the Holy Spirit is actively working to fulfill the prayer of the Lord Jesus when the Lord Jesus prayed for you and I, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word, O Lord, is truth. So God is doing that here this morning and every time we do that. Isn't that good news? Amen. You said that like Presbyterians? All right. Give glory to God on that. Absolutely. Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this is God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, I ask that You would give us ears to hear, give us uh, hearts to receive Your Word with joy and with faithfulness. Lord, where Your Word um, contradicts something that we would prefer to believe or think, help us to joyfully submit to and prefer Your Word over our feelings. And Holy Spirit, we now gratefully welcome Your ministry in our lives as You sanctify us through uh, the power of Your living and inspired Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you can have a seat. There is a sense in which we can say that Romans 8 is all about how through many dangers, toils, and snares, God is committed through Christ to bring us all the way home to glory. We are assured that our lives are being brought to full redemption, body and spirit, even as we walk through a groaning world, and we join that groaning world in groaning right along with it. We are assured that the same Spirit through whom we are adopted and given the status of sons in the Father's household, that that same Spirit is even now helping us in our weakness. And now the Apostle assures us that God's sovereignty extends to our sufferings in such a way as to guarantee an outcome that will redound for the good Namely, our eternal salvation and joy in His presence. Everything the Christian experiences in this life, from the brightest joys to the severest of calamities, all of it is under the sway of God's sovereign governance of all things. Full stop. Not only that, but God holds the salvation of His people within the merciful grasp of His sovereign hand, such that He will not lose a single one of His children. From beginning to end, salvation is from the Lord. From being known and predestined by God before the creation, to calling and justification, to being brought all the way home to glory, the salvation of God's people is in God's unmovably sovereign and gracious hand. And in this brief but powerful passage, the Apostle Paul assures us of two applications regarding God's sovereignty. First, that God is sovereign in our sufferings, and secondly, that He is sovereign in our salvation all the way from beginning to to the eternity and glory. So let's look at those two applications of God's sovereignty. First of all, let's consider the comfort we have from God's sovereignty in our suffering. The comfort we have from God's sovereignty in our suffering. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For some 2,000 years, Christians around the world have been and continue to be comforted by those very words. Haven't you found comfort in those words? 
Aren't they in the, the Rolodex of those promises you go to routinely? If, uh, if you're under 30, a Rolodex <laughs> is this big contraption that used to sit on your desk and it had these cards and it would, they would roll around and I miss them. But it's there. You keep that promise handy, don't you? I hope you do. God will not waste a single calamity. He will not waste a single sorrow. Listen to me, Christian. Not a single thing you suffer in this life, not a single burden you bear, will ever have been in vain. Because God is at work. Sometimes we'll see the way that He is at work, at least partially. Sometimes in this lifetime we won't see it. But He's at work. Now, unfortunately, these words, though, are oftentimes misunderstood, misquoted, misapplied. It's important that we know that what Paul is saying and and what he's not saying, first of all, he is not saying that all things work out pleasantly for all people everywhere all the time. The promise is made to those who love God. And those who love God happen to be simultaneously the very people whom he has called to himself according to his saving purpose. And this is also not a promise that even for Christians, all things will be pleasant for you now. That's not the promise either. Rather, the promise is that even the worst of trials are designed to work together by God for a good purpose that he has determined. Notice how Paul says, and we know that. This is something that Christians are supposed to know. That means we have to keep being reminded of it. Christians are supposed to know that even this trial, even this loss that hurts so deeply, even the mistreatment or whatever it may be, all of it is within the orbit of God's sovereignty such that he is working it all, arranging it all, designing it all for a purpose that he himself is able to call good. Now let me ask you a question. Since I've told you this does not mean all things will work out pleasantly for you now, are you disappointed? (laughs) I hope you're not, because first of all, your life experience should tell you that that is not the experience of the Christian. Anyone hoping for something like works together for pristine health, or works together for greater wealth, or works together so that nothing bad ever happens to my kids. If you are hoping for that, I do not deny that there are churches out there that will teach you that. The problem is they're lying. Here, the context is very clear. God is working all... What's Paul been writing about here? He's been writing about our salvation from start to glorification. He's been offering us assurance after assurance that we are held within the care of God's mighty grace. And so the immediate context here of this promise is that God is working all things together such that our lives are conformed more and more to Jesus and all the more as we come closer and closer to going home to glory. That's the immediate first application of this, is that God works all things for those who love him, For those who have been called to him by his saving purpose, he works every single detail of your life, every single circumstance that you walk through, he is working it all together for your final salvation. 
Now, obviously, the all things is a comprehensive statement. Not some things or most things, but all things are caused together to be worked by God for the good, for some good. The first application of that good is for our final salvation. But I also think think that there is a good that God works in all things that is oftentimes also applied here in this temporal life. Uh, Joseph from uh, the Genesis account is, is living proof of the fact that the good that God uh, oftentimes works ha- has, has a temporary application even here in this fallen world. Now, we typically don't need convincing that joyful things and happy times can redound for the good. That's why I think Paul is really referring here to the sorrows, to the sufferings, because it's in those things that we need the reminder, even in this, dear Christian, God is working. God is at work even in this. And can we just affirm that there is no possible way to have any confidence in this promise apart from a robust doctrine of God's sovereignty in all things. If God is well-intentioned but not sovereign, beloved, listen, I have very little comfort to give you today. And God certainly doesn't. We have confidence in this. God can make such a bold statement through the apostle here precisely because he is running his universe. I used to have one of those watches with a glass backing so that you could see the inner workings of the watch. Don't you love those? And as you peer in, you can see all those different wheels and gears. Some are larger, some are so tiny you can't even hardly see them. Some are medium size, and they're all turning at different speeds, at different rates, and even in different directions. And yet all these different wheels and gears are running in ways that seem completely random. They seem completely at counter purposes. But because of the genius of the watchmaker, they all end up working together to tell you the right time. And I think that gives us a picture of our lives in this world with all of its constantly moving parts. Some big, some small. Some turning one way, others turning the opposite way. And yet through it all, the master builder engineers the whole thing to work together for a good of his determining, a good that we will call good. In this life, the good God accomplishes through what we suffer may be for someone else. Our pain may be used by God for the encouragement of the church or to give a faithful witness to a neighbor. And in such a case, he may see it as the good and right and proper thing to extend a period of sorrow or a period of pain because the good that he's bringing about, which we can't fully maybe see, is a good that he knows is the right thing. And in this we have to believe, we have to have hope. Joseph was well aware of this truth over 2,000 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And speaking to his brothers long after their wicked treachery, he was able to forgive them, explaining, quote, this is from Genesis chapter 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
Joseph was able to look at those men and say this evil act that you did, and it was evil. This evil thing you did to me years ago, what I didn't see then, but what I fully understand now, God was intending, superintending through the entire thing because it was going to please him to save a multitude of Egyptians from starvation by putting me in this place in Egypt. And I wouldn't have gotten there apart from your betrayal. Now, was Joseph excusing their sinful acts? The answer is no. Did they get a get-out-of-free-jail card? I mean, were they able to say, well, it's cool that we acted like belligerent, evil, wicked men because God works all things? No. Sin is still sin. Wickedness is still wickedness. But God is greater. It means that even when people do their worst and this world continues to groan and you yourself fail and sin and continue to groan, even then the sovereign God is turning every wheel to bring about the completion of our salvation and to even bring about some good in this still groaning world. I've alluded to this before. But prior to the Lord calling me and my family here to Covenant over 10 years ago, we had walked through a very, very difficult call serving at a church in the Philadelphia area. And in our time there, I saw people do and say things that I had never before witnessed in a church. And the buildup of the pressure and the anxiety and the nonstop attacks and the, the wickedness that even to me at that time was shocking. It all culminated in me just keeling over one day, one evening in an elder meeting there. And I was taken by ambulance to a hospital. And from there followed some nine or ten months of meeting with a biblical counselor um, who the Lord used to really help me tremendously. And I remember in what would have been our final session with him, Karen had started joining in on those sessions about halfway through my time meeting with this counselor. Um, And I think it was probably in our last or maybe second to last session with him, Karen said what I was not ready to say at the time. I can say it now absolutely with full confidence. I could not say it that day. She said it. Um, But she said to Winston, our counselor, and the words are tattooed on my memory. She said I would, because it was remarkable, remarkable to me that she could say it, because my wife cried every day for a year and a half. Um, and it's it, as, as difficult as it is to be the target of vicious, vicious attacks, it's really hard to watch your loved one be the target of vicious, vicious attacks. But she said this. She said, I'd rather that we had gone through what we went through and learned what we learned than to not have gone through what we went through and not learned what we learned. You know, all that is is peering into the watch and seeing the harmony, right? That's just believing Romans 8.28. And knowing that there is comfort to be found in understanding the sovereign hand of God is at work in your suffering, in your sorrow, in your grief. What an extraordinary, comforting promise that is. 
The second application that Paul makes is to our salvation. And it all has to do with our confidence, our assurance in Him, the confidence that we have from this very same truth, that God is sovereign and that He is sovereign in our salvation. You see there verses 29 and 30? Here Paul begins to trace that good which he causes all things to work toward in the lives of his people, which is the glorious completion of our salvation. And here is recorded what generations of Christians have called the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. Each link representing the gracious acts of God whereby he knew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and will in the end glorify us. Let's look briefly at each golden link of that chain. First of all, foreknowledge. For those he foreknew. Okay, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and for those who he has called according to his saving purpose for those whom he foreknew. In the Bible... God's foreknowledge is never portrayed as mere awareness of things that have yet to happen. God's foreknowledge is far more determinative than that. It's never passive knowledge. Rather, God's foreknowledge belongs to his sovereign rule over all things. It is the knowledge of experience and design. It is the knowledge of relationship. Notice that the knowledge referred to here is not events that God was aware of, but do you notice the wording? For those whom he foreknew. Paul is not writing about events that God was aware of in the future. He's writing about persons God knew. It's very much like what Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1 where we are told that God chose us, he elected us according to his own will before the foundations of the world. Foreknowledge. God knew you before you were even around. God knew you before the foundations of the world. Beloved, that should give you assurance. That should give you deep confidence. You know, we get very, very excited when we're chosen for something. I mean, it goes back to the playground, right, and kickball. I mean, who wanted to be the last person to be be picked for kickball, right? Who wants Pruitt? Well, okay. Kickball. Hated kickball my whole life. But man, it feels good to be picked, doesn't it? Does your joy extend to the fact that before the foundations of the world... God said, I know you. I know you. You're one of mine. Second word, predestination. We'll just move by that because no one questions that. Um, Third, (laughs) predestination. Well, Todd, do you believe in predestination? right here of course I do of course I do Sinclair Ferguson said if if you don't believe predestination then you might as well wad up your Bible and throw it in the trash 
Now you're saying, oh, now come on. No, I'm serious. Verse 29, he also predestined. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined. If you didn't get it the first time, he brings it around again. The word translated predestined is from the Greek word proridzo. Get this, you want to know what the Greek word proridzo means? To determine or decide beforehand. Now, there's, there's just no way to soften this word to refer to a passive action on God's part. When it comes to His redemptive purposes and the salvation of His people, God is not a contingency. He is the prime mover. And you will find the doctrine of predestination throughout the Word, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not only is the Word used, but the doctrine is taught in many other places as well. You'll find it in the writings of the apostles and in the words of the Lord Jesus. One of the Lord Jesus' favorite ways to describe the people who would come to believe in Him in generations to come is those whom the Father has given me. Isn't that great? Jesus believed in predestination. He preached it. We sing in our hymns, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Do we know what we're singing? His holy will abideth. God's will is done. God's will is sovereign. He ordains all things that come to pass. And that includes you, dear Christian. The late great New Testament scholar Leon Morris wrote this, quote, Predestination is an important biblical concept and one which some people find difficult because they are so sure that we have free wills. The meaning of the word is plain. We must not allow ourselves to be sidetracked by modern notions of what is or is not possible for God. Paul is saying that God is the author of our salvation, and that from beginning to end. We are not to think that God can take action only when we graciously give him permission. Well, here's some common objections that you'll hear to the doctrine of predestination. First of all, I don't like predestination because it fosters arrogance. Now, I will not deny that there are people who come to to the Reformed faith, they start reading the Protestant reformers and then go further back and read some of the church fathers, especially Augustine, and they get so filled with wonderful theological knowledge that they start acting like horses' rear ends. I get that. I know that. Are you allowed to say horses' rear ends? Okay. (laughs) So we can be arrogant. We have the capacity, just like every other human being, to be arrogant. No doubt about it. But the doctrine of predestination is there to humble us. Because the doctrine of predestination says, don't you ever even consider taking credit for your salvation. What do you have that you did not receive? And so predestination says to our pride, get down. And once you get down, go down even lower. Or how about this? Predestination fosters uncertainty. Well, I I spend all my time worrying about whether or not I'm among the elect. And I would just say this. 
that the unregenerate heart does not worry much about salvation. The lost person who cares not for Jesus or his gospel does not spend his or her time worrying about whether or not they are in Christ. If you are struggling with certainty over your faith, it is either because you are converted or you're right on the precipice of conversion. Or how about this? It fosters apathy. If God is that much in control, then it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, if he's predestined us, it doesn't matter if I believe in him or not. Wrong. On the contrary, the Scripture's emphasis on the overruling sovereignty of God in all things not only does not take away human responsibility, it's the very thing that establishes human responsibility. Our own confession of faith says that God's sovereign election establishes human responsibility because God not only decrees the end, but he decrees the means to the end, doesn't he? And everyone, everyone who is going home to glory one day is someone who has come to believe in and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. If anybody ever says to you, well, the doctrine of God's predestination or the doctrine of sovereign election means it doesn't matter if you believe because you're elect. Wrong. There's no one in the history of the church that has taught that. What it means is that God will find you in your lostness and he'll change your heart and he'll bring you to himself such that you will turn to him and you will believe in him. The fourth one, the fourth objection is probably the worst. It's unfair. And I say it's the worst because this is the objection that resides in human pridefulness. To think that we can bring God down and put him in the witness stand and be his prosecutor. How dare you do this, God? That's not fair. You know, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul gives us his most polemically charged defense of the doctrine of God's sovereign election, which is connected to the doctrine of predestination. And in it, he presents it in such clear terms, complete with biblical examples from the Old Testament, that he even anticipates the complaint, the objection, Some of you will say, Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing here, hey, that's not fair. Now, if Paul wasn't teaching God's sovereign, predestinating, electing grace, he would not anticipate the complaint that it's not fair. Right? If God was saying, well, God is very, if Paul was saying, well, God is very passive, you know. And what he does is he waits to see what you're going to do. And then if you do the right thing, then he'll elect you. Paul wouldn't say, now some of you think that's unfair. No, Paul is saying just exactly what he's saying in the next chapter, in chapter 9. And he anticipates the complaint that always comes, that's not fair. But here's Paul's answer, because Paul does answer the complaint. Paul does answer the objection that this isn't fair. And here's what he says. Some of you will find this incredibly satisfying. (laughs) But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, Paul asks, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the the, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Those who object to the doctrine of God's predestinating grace have to give an answer to the Scripture's teaching of it. When someone hears and believes the gospel, listen to me now, when someone hears and believes the gospel, that is a choice that that person is making. Yes. Every Christian has come to the place where they repent of their sin and they choose to trust in Christ and to place their faith in Him and they deliberately choose to do so. And yet behind it all is the mysterious, sovereign, unseen hand of the Creator and His overruling, gracious, wise providence, His predestinating grace. As C.J. Vaughan writes, some over a hundred years ago, quote, everyone who is eventually saved can only ascribe this salvation from the first step to the last to God's favor and act. Human merit must be excluded, and this can only be by tracing back the work far beyond the obedience which evidences, or even the faith which appropriates even to an act of favor on the part of God, that God who foresees and foreordains from eternity all his works. Beloved, listen. The only reason I know Jesus and the only reason you know Jesus is because God found you and he found me in our separation from Him, in our sin, in our enmity towards Him, and He changed our heart. And He drew us to Himself. He chose us. He predestined this for us long before the foundations of the world. I remember the moment this collection of doctrines concerning God's sovereignty, His electing grace, His predestinating grace. I remember the moment where that turned from something I was fighting against into being some of the best of all good news. And the way it expands the glory of God and the way that it deepens our gratitude to Him. The next link in the chain is calling. He also called. Now this isn't just a mere request, right? God is not on the other end of the phone just hoping we'll pick up. He's not sending out an RSVP hoping that he's not embarrassed by the low turnout. This call is best understood as an authoritative summons. And those whom he predestined, he also summoned. And the one doing the summoning is God himself, who graciously overcomes our stubborn sinful resistance such that we now come to him willfully, joyfully. This is why we call it his effectual call that we confessed earlier together from the Shorter Catechism. Now, I can call you to do something, and you may or may not do it. But that's not the same thing as when your Creator calls you. In effectual calling, 
that external call to believe the gospel becomes the internal joyful willing of the sinner who is being brought to Jesus by God. And in this, it's the intention, it's the purpose of God that receives the primacy rather than us. Calling, that word calling, kletos, has to be understood as effectual, an effectual, powerful thing. When God calls you, he brings you. And those whom he called, he also justified. Justification is the next link. This is now Paul's familiar forensic language, right? The language of the courtroom. God has justified us. And what he means is that he's not going to call you and then not save you. He's not going to call you and then leave his work undone. He's going to justify you. And he's already done that through the blood of Christ. God doesn't leave loose ends when it comes to the salvation of his people. He's justified you, Christian. That means you are not guilty. That means you bear the righteousness of Christ. That means you are linked and united to Christ in such a way that you are his co-heir. You've been justified. And then that final link is glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now isn't this fascinating? Because glorification is technically something that is yet to come. All of these things that we've already gone through, all of these other links are once for all acts of God that have already been accomplished. He did foreknow us. He did predestine us. He did call us. He has justified us. Glorification is that state where he brings us all the way home. And in glorified, undecaying bodies, we live together in the new creation in perfect harmony with one another and in perfect harmony with our Creator. But that hasn't happened yet. And do you notice it's still in the past tense? In the Greek, it's what we call the aorist tense. It means it has happened and it's accomplished. That means that it's as sure as anything can be sure. What did we just say? God leaves no loose ends when it comes to the salvation of his people. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of that final eternal day as having already been accomplished. You see, God does not exist in time the way we do. He is eternal. That means he is outside of time. God created time because he created all things. But he exists outside of and, and overrules all of time. That means he doesn't experience the passage of moments. There wasn't a yesterday for God. There's not a tomorrow for God. Can you get your mind around that? The answer is no, you can't, because everything we experience is within the passage of moments. Everything. But imagine, see if your conceptual imagination can can wrap at least a little around, a bit around the fact that God is eternal. And so he sees the whole picture all at once. And though in our experience glorification is yet to come, from God's eternal sovereign perspective, we're already there. That's why the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can write in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly. Because God sees it all there in his economy. It's already been accomplished. I love what James Denny wrote over a hundred years ago about Paul's use of the aorist or the past tense here. 
He said it's the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. We are waiting to be glorified and simultaneously we have already gotten there. You know, the problem is that sometimes we have a hard time believing it. And our lack of assurance has more to do with what we believe about God than what it is we believe about ourselves. So, weary soul, Christian, are you going to believe what God has told us here or not? Are you going to receive the comfort of the assurance that he wants to apply to your heart, or are you not? You see, our lack of assurance is a direct problem in in, in how we think about what God is like. Do you ever look at your life and and you see your continued struggle with sin? You see that there are even days when you question whether or not it's worth going on as a Christian? Or or do, do you see your life and you wonder whether or not God is really going to complete what he began in you? Listen to me now, this promise is for you. Most of us, when we look at a big block of stone, we see a big block of stone. But consider an incredibly skilled sculptor. I have, a, I have this big old thick Michelangelo book at home. And it's beautiful. It's a big book. You know, it's beautiful and has drawings and sculptures. He was, he was the greatest sculptor of the medieval era, probably the greatest sculptor who ever lived. And it, it, it's been said of Michelangelo that he could look at a massive block of marble and see inside of it. So where we're looking at a massive block of marble and saying, man, that thing's got to be heavy. Michelangelo's looking at it and he sees David. Or he sees the Pieta. And he can picture how he's going to take a chisel, take a chisel and a hammer, apply it to marble, and bring it to a place where what we end up seeing is the face of Mary covered with this thin wispy sheet of silk because he was able to see what was in it and bring it about and God the master sculptor chisels from nothing he takes what we cannot see yet and he brings it about and not only does he see what he will make of you because he's unbound by time. But he's already brought it about. We're just catching up. And if you look once more at verse 29, and those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The salvation to which God predestines us is not some vague or general sense of well-being, nor is it just about us getting to heaven, however good that is, and that's good, but it's more than that. God has predestined that you, Christian, will be conformed more and more to Christ and that that will go on happening until you get home to glory. The God who knew us before the foundations of the world, 
The God who predestined your salvation has also predetermined that a part of that salvation is your Christ-likeness. And when we look at our spotty record of obedience to the Lord, when we examine our still struggling relationship with faith and faithfulness, we are meant to be comforted by this. The still sinning Christian, and that's all of us by the way, is to look at those words in verse 29 and go, oh good, good, he's not done. Oh thank God. He won't abandon me to my sin. Oh, thank God. He's not just wishfully hoping that I'll be conformed to Christ. He's determined it. That like a master sculptor, God is going about making us more and more like Jesus. He's making us more holy and more just, more tender, more courageous, more loving. And so, Christian, God has not left you to the ruin of sin. He is at work, and His plan to conform you more and more to Jesus will not fail because He has not left anything to chance. More than that, He has graciously not left your destiny up to the ebbs and tides of our own compromised will. Thank God. If He left His saving plan for my life in the hands of my own compromised will, let me tell you something, I'd be lost today. Thank God for His sovereignty. Or I'd be lost and you would be lost. God has predestined, He has determined beforehand to conform you to our blessed Lord Jesus. And he'll keep doing that all the way home. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And now, O oh Lord, please secure your word to our hearts. Let us not forget your truth or neglect it, but let it bring about a harvest of faith and faithfulness, of greater hope in you, and comfort from your almighty power. And we pray this through Christ the Lord. Amen.